Good evening. I just wanted to bring up one sort of housekeeping note before we get started tonight, and that is regarding our online resources here at Peace, on which we are coming to rely more and more these days, it seems. This midweek series that we've been doing on the window to the soul, the eyes have it, is available through our podcast and audio sermons online, as many of you already know. But as of last Sunday, that is March 22nd, some of you may have also discovered and perhaps viewed already our very first video recording of our Peace Lutheran Sunday worship service. That recording is available to you on demand over on our virtual worship webpage, also on our website. The webpage is very easy to find. If you just go to peacecamarillo.com, you're met there with some web banners that greet you right there on our launch page, so you cannot miss them. Just go to peacecamarillo.com and watch those web banners rotate through. There are about five of them. Click the one you need. And if what you're looking for does not come up, why, you can simply use our website's drop-down navigational menus to find what you need. We'll all get used to this Gutenberg moment in which we find ourselves in this new normal life we are reluctantly coming to know, which certainly isn't the old normal, is it? The Gutenberg moment is what our Lutheran Church District President aptly called our internet broadcasting or distribution of God's word in this day and age. He said what we are relying on today is much like that in Luther's day, which they relied on in the Gutenberg printing press. That was their new tool to distribute God's word in their society. Gutenberg's printing press was certainly revolutionary in technological terms back then, just like the internet has been so revolutionary in our day. So we really thank God for providentially providing this modern connectivity even when our government is asking that we avoid any physical connection. And in some places, they're not asking. To preface tonight's sermon, finally, you can also hear Deacon Bob or watch him as he reads aloud this week's passion narrative on our website as well. This traditionally goes along with our customary midweek Lenten services. Whew, so with all that said, my brothers and sisters in Christ, Let's get started with another podcasted sermon. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Speaking of this isolation, I heard an interesting comparison of another sort this week by a Lutheran pastor who said that this government-imposed isolation, which we're all experiencing, is sort of like being in prison. That is, being imprisoned within our own homes. That may sound odd at first, but strangely, there's some truth to that, isn't there? You may already be feeling the onset of the cooped up cabin fever. Let's pray that's the only fever you're feeling that's coming upon you. But this comparison of being quarantined to being in prison got me thinking, especially in light of tonight's topic in our Lenten series, Murderous Eyes. We've looked at misjudging eyes, betraying eyes, sleepy eyes, and denying eyes, all on display for us in the various characters involved in the historical account of our Lord's passion as recorded for us specifically in the last part of Mark's gospel, which we are using for our sermon texts. 
By the way, if you listen to Deacon Bob's reading of the Passion Narrative tonight, that reading takes us a bit further in the account. We'll only go as far with the sermon text uh, to Mark's, Mark chapter 14, verse 65, where we encounter Jesus' mock trial before the Sanhedrin, or Jewish leaders. Next week is Jesus before Pilate. So here's a key part of our sermon text from Mark 14. Quote, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, unquote. Thus far the gospel. So tonight we look through the murderous eyes of Annas, Caiaphas, the son of, son-in-law of Annas and current high priest, the rest of the Sanhedrin, or ruling Jewish elders, and all those soldiers of the Jewish guard and rounded up accusers of Jesus who trumped up charges or twisted truths about Jesus in order to ensure a conviction of blasphemy against him. Now let me remind you that the idea behind this Lenten series as we seek to see through the eyes of these Passion Week characters is that we can relate ourselves to these flawed characters in some way. And so in weeks past, you may have found yourself whispering a confession to the Lord Jesus Christ for all the times you felt, excuse me, you fell asleep, you felt tired, too tired to pray. When the scripture says, pray without ceasing. Or maybe you could identify with Peter's denial, knowing that you, don't always seize those opportunities to give a witness to your faith in Christ when those opportunities present themselves. But tonight, tonight I'm asking you to do something you really won't feel comfortable doing. I'm suggesting that this prevalent feeling today of being bound in prison during this current virus outbreak is in fact an accurate metaphor for murderers, and we are those murderers. As horrible as that sounds, I know it, and I don't like that label myself at all. We shouldn't like it. Our egos protest. Now wait a minute, wait a minute, pastor. I may be lazy at times, I'll admit, or I may not stick up for God as often as I should, but I sure ain't no murderer. Well, that's a very understandable knee-jerk reaction to the charge of murderer. There's even a more thought-out, philosophically reasoned reaction that goes something like this. Listen, the Jewish leaders had it in for Jesus, and even as the text says, they were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. I, on the other hand, never laid a hand on Jesus. I never made any false charges against Jesus, nor could I do either one of those, for all this happened very long ago and far away. So redirect your false charges of murder towards someone else who really is guilty as charged, namely those characters in tonight's biblical account, not me. To add still more weight to this argument, one could adduce 
further evidence against murderous Jews, as John, who's also Jewish, refers to them in his gospel. Later on, when Pilate is trying to release Jesus, who appears innocent in his eyes, the Jews cry out, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be upon us and our children. So you see, the Jews who knowingly made up lies to convict Jesus of a capital crime also consciously called down upon themselves the consequences of his death. Therefore, it was the Jews who were the ones responsible for Jesus' death. The defense rests. Well, there's certainly something to be said concerning the historical accuracy of such a case being made. But are we really ready to excuse ourselves and pronounce our own innocence when it comes to playing a part in our Savior's death on the cross? Dare we exonerate ourselves of all guilt? As historically accurate as that defense case starts out, consider these crucial facts left out of that case. Number one, did the Jews actually carry out their threats of murder themselves? Answer, no. They legally could not. For crucifixion was a capital punishment that only the ruling Romans could legally carry out. Therefore, already you have, as party to the death of Christ, the procurator, Pilate, the Roman soldiers who mocked Jesus, and whatever other support staff among the Gentiles present that day that may have facilitated the specific execution of the Son of God on Good Friday. So then both Jew and Gentile share in the blame for Christ's death. Speaking of Jew and Gentile, number two, the former Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, who, by the way, was himself breathing out murderous threats against the early church and oversaw the murder of the first Christian martyr, St. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7. This Christian convert, who went on to call himself Paul, the chief of sinners, he calls out both Jew and Gentile as together being guilty of Christ's blood. Listen to what he writes in his letter to the Christian believers in Rome. Quote, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he goes on to say, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Okay, did you catch that last point? God presented Christ, it says, as a sacrifice of atonement. That is a propitiation, something that turns away God's wrath against us. And God, the Father, did this through the shedding of his own son's blood. This, Paul says, is our redemption, our salvation to be received 
by faith. So in this last scenario then, the death of Christ was something that the triune God was in on the whole time. And number three, Jesus himself states, no one takes my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. That's from John 10, 18. Wow. That really puts a different spin on the whole question of who is responsible for Christ's death on the cross. We can summarize it like this then. The death of Christ is a shared responsibility. And there are guilty parties and innocent parties. Now, which category do you want to place yourself under? Guilty or innocent? God is the innocent party. Are you claiming to be under that category? See, the whole big picture changes when you look at it this way, doesn't it? When you look at the problem of sin and evil as the global pandemic that it is, we've all sinned. The wages of sin is death. Everybody dies. End of story. Not. That's not the end of the story. Yes, even God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, came down and he died as one of us, dying our death, taking on all of the holy wrath of God against us in his innocent suffering, his passion. So we wouldn't have to. We couldn't endure God's wrath. Jesus did endure it. He took our punishment so that we could be forgiven. Every last lying, lazy, and even murderous one of us. Just think of the Bible's Moses and David among the homicidal murderers counted in God's kingdom. And that's not counting every last one of us who have ever been hateful towards someone and thus committed murder in our hearts, according to Jesus' standards published in his Sermon on the Mount. But not Jesus. No hate there. And he was the only one who is ever truly innocent through and through and therefore truly justified in condemning those, those who put him up on that cross. But he didn't condemn them. Instead, while hanging there, amid the mocking, the spitting, and all the cursing, Jesus cried out on behalf of all murderers of all time, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You probably do not know. You probably are not consciously thinking about it every time you commit any kind of sin whatsoever, that if it's a big sin or a small sin, whatever sin, it's for that sin that Jesus had to die. There was no other way of reconciling you with the Father of our spirits. Remember Christ's prayer, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass before me. Jesus got an answer to his prayer that day, but it was not the answer any human being would have hoped for. Jesus drank the cup of wrath that day so that at his banquet table today, in the blessed sacrament, we adulterers 
haters, and murderers could drink the cup of forgiveness of all our sins. St. Paul, who goes down in history not as a murderer, but as the blessed apostle to the Gentiles, writes, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. 1 Corinthians 5.8 Now in God's strange and mysterious way of working out all things for good, even what we sinners have schemed for bad, we can say now in solidarity, even with the Jews who called out for Jesus' death, let his blood be upon us and our children. Yes, Lord, so be it. God grant that the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and the sin of the world, God grant that it be indeed sprinkled upon our hearts and minds in order to sanctify us, to save us from eternal punishment and to wash away in that precious blood all our iniquity with which we have ever offended you, O Lord God Almighty. May we humbly and contritely continue to keep this feast of forgiveness until our Lord Jesus himself comes again to take us with him in everlasting goodness and mercy. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.